Ushuaia Bound, no matter what it takes, is his attitude. The rider is Dan Byers. Dan is on his second attempt to hit the southernmost city of South America. On his first try, a medical emergency forced him to return home, except somehow Dan got sidetracked and found himself laying beside his upside-down motorcycle while gas dripped out in a remote ravine on the Trans-American Trail. And that was supposed to be the trip home for medical attention. Don't even ask, because Dan can't explain it himself. But he's going to give it a try on this episode. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. They've been doing it since 2002. That's Outfitting Adventure Riders. And they have got a load, I mean the full load of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. MaxBMW.com. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump. Made in the USA. Has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. The website, greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. So I pulled out my drop wallet because my drop wallet didn't have very much money in it. And when I opened it up, the, the head guy was running a scam grabbed the wallet out of my hands and pulled the fake driver's license out of the wallet. Then he goes off on this terror that now they've got this because now I'm carrying a fake driver's license. My name is Dan Byers. I am from Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, which is a suburb of Akron, Ohio. Um, I am trying to ride my motorcycle to uh, Ushuaia. I used to be a contract negotiator and a buyer for a pharmaceutical company. Dan, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You used to be a buyer? Hmm, what, what did you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I think that's sort of self-explanatory, but, but I'm, I'm curious. Basically, I negotiated contracts for large bulk chemical purchases. See, to me, that almost sounds like one of those ultimate jobs because there's not very many jobs where you get paid to spend someone else's money. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I've said that. I've said that my whole life. And I, 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 you know, people ask you how you like your job. I, say, I love spending other people's money. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, I don't know. There's a feeling of empowerment from uh, doing your homework properly and, uh, getting things signed off with a, a chemical manufacturer or a steel manufacturer and um, having the book show that you saved your company, you know, lots of money. That feels good. 
Yeah, sort of they're, they're coming in with one price and you're walking out with another or maybe some <laughs> some extras or things like that. Hey, I was I was pretty tough. <laughs> so, so you're a tough negotiator then? Uh, tough but fair. I, I, uh, I, I usually didn't give second and third chances to suppliers. So I made it very clear up front that your best shot was by being forthcoming right from the get-go. Right. Well, does, does that play into your life still? Are, are you still like, I mean, is that part of your makeup, part of your personality? <laughs> like, like I'll ride around the block, go back into the drive center and say, I said no onions, damn it. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you're, one, you're one of those guys. <laughs> uh, um, it, it has, I've, I've, I've really tried since I, I quit my job, I've really tried to mellow out more. Um, I've always considered myself kind of an older hippie and uh, trying to live my life by the hippie, you know, tenets of peace and love. And um, it's hard to do that when you're tied up in a corporate job and your headphones on and yelling at a computer all day. Yeah, I mean, a hippie's not going to go back and tell them they forgot the onions. A hippie's going to say, hey, well, whatever, that's cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's so it's kind of like a dichotic mix, you know, like uh, my professional life fighting against the, the inner inner person trying to get out, you know. <laughs> but uh, um, so, sometimes, sure, uh, I'm not buying too many souvenirs or anything like that on this trip, but uh, it, it definitely has it makes me take pause when I'm in an area with a lot of food stands and I see a, a pollo empanada for a dollar fifty for two, <laughs> I might hesitate and walk a little further, see if I can get three of them for a dollar fifty. You know, <laughs> I'm on a I'm on a pretty I'm on a pretty tight budget on this trip. Yeah, of course. It, you, you're you're fifty seven and retired. I'm fifty nine right now. Okay, so you've been retired since when? Well, see, that's kind of funny too. I'm not. I don't consider myself retired. I I even had trouble getting through a few Central America border crossing because when they asked if I was retired, I would tell them, um, I quit my job. Uh, I'm not at retirement age yet. So, uh, I truly believe that when I get back to the United States, assuming I do go back, uh, that I will have to work for a few years until I can collect social security. Mm. So it's not, not a complete retirement, but you did take a retirement package though. That was your idea. Why did you leave and, and what did you do? Well, Jim, I'll, I'll try not to be too political, but I quit my corporate job the day after our current president was elected. And I made up my mind at that point that I was needed to get out of the country and explore Latin America before there was more animosity towards us. And, um, so I, I quit a perfectly viable corporate job the next day after the election. And the only money I had to my name was my 401k plan with that company. And I had been there about 12 years. So it wasn't that large of a sum, sum of money. And um, there's a new rule out called the 55 rule, where if you are at least 55 years old and you have uh, worked at your current company at least five years, and that is the company where your retirement plan is, that you're allowed to cash in your 401k with no penalty. Mm -hmm. And um, so I took advantage of that and I cashed in my 401k plan. I sold my car, 
sold everything I owned, put it in two debit accounts, and you know started preparing for the trip, um, knowing full well that when I get back from this, I will be completely and utterly flat broke. No savings, no anything, no. <laughs> it sounds kind of sketchy, I know, but uh, it's it's what I've done to to make this happen, and I'm not I'm not even really bothered with it. I, I have a a good resume. I have already had multiple job offers. Um, I'm my question now is: Do I just work a couple years until sixty two and I can retire early? Do I work a few more years to 65 and get the larger Social Security check? Um, a good a good part of this trip's focus has been on trying to find a place I'd like to live after uh, I start collecting Social Security. Let's jump back to the motorcycle thing and uh, sure. what got you even deciding to, to go on a trip. Um, have you been riding bikes for a long time? I've had my motorcycle endorsements since I was 16. Um, I've had a slew of assorted bikes, mostly uh, street bikes, um, a few crotch rocket type, you know, sport bikes. Uh, um, I rode throughout my marriage. I was mar- married uh, 13 years, but she didn't like to ride. She didn't like me riding. So the miles I put in during that 13 years was fairly limited. And after the divorce, and that's part of the story, too. I was kind of stupid, and I fought for custody during the divorce. I didn't want to be divorced. So I went into an 18-month custody battle, and I lost custody, and I lost the divorce case. And that 18 months put me in over $130,000 in debt. Some of that was even to my own lawyer. That was my divorce lawyer that was suing me because I owed him money. So right after the divorce, as part of like, a, I don't know, a, a sanity check, I started riding a lot. I was averaging 25, 35,000 miles a year. Um, I had an SV650 with hard luggage on it that I flew around the country with. And uh, I've always wanted to get into this style of riding. Um, I've always dreamed about doing a trip to Ushuaia or through Europe and India, Mongolia. But I never figured out a way of making it a reality because of that debt. Mm. So I, I had this grand plan that uh, when I got to zero debt, I would do whatever it took to, to make it to Ushuaia. And uh, when I found out about that 55 rule and I did the math, the money that I would have from selling everything and cashing in that small 401k would be enough to do it. So I sold the SV650. And I bought a uh, Chinese 250cc adventure bike uh, made by Zong Shen that's uh, being sold through a company in California. And uh, it's called a CSC RX3. And uh, I had that for two seasons and about 35,000 miles. And uh, with that bike, I, I started doing a lot of moto camping. I started riding a lot of gravel and dirt. And while not a true enduro, the bike was pretty good off-road. So, uh, Where did the adventure bike thing come in, though? Like, Where do you get interested in, in sort of looking at that? Because I mean, you're riding around in your, on your SV650. You're doing the same sort of thing as most travelers are doing. You're going places. But where, where did you get interested in the sort of adventure bike thing? Well, it, it began on the SV with uh, 
you know, going down a well-known road like Route 50 in West Virginia and looking off to the side and going, I wonder where that road goes and uh, turning down it and having it turn into gravel and then having it turn into crap and then you know, stopping and taking a few pictures of the SV covered in mud. And, and I started getting more and more, you know, inclined to like, want to explore more and uh the sv just really wasn't the bike for the job i bought that rx3 thinking that it would be the bike that would get me into adventure riding and take me to ushuaia what, what where does ushuaia come in what, what got you interested in riding there uh, mostly adventure rider website i've been um, glued to adventure rider for i don't know a decade reading people's ride reports looking at people's pictures wishing it was me, you know, um, it's pretty simple. Some horizons unlimited, some private blogs, but mostly adventure writer. So you're thinking you want to, you want to go out and do that for yourself. And you, you, as you said, you had, you had that in your mind that when you get to that zero debt point, you're going to find a way to get on that bike and go. So what did you do? Well, I, um, quit work and, uh, as much as I dislike our current president, I should, I should thank him for, being who he is because he got me off my ass and wanting to do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, I knew that the RX three wasn't the bike for it because it needed money just to get back to ground zero of functionality. So I started doing a little bit of research on what bike would be right for me. Uh, I knew how much money I had available. So I gave myself a $9,000 budget for a bike, which gave me a lot of leeway, everything from used BMW GS 1200s to almost anything. And um, the DR650 kept popping up as being uh, like a simpler version of the KLR, you know, less less to go wrong even than a KLR. You mean for cooling system-wise? Right. So I had a friend who's now passed away, uh, Mark Moyer. He was uh, like my best friend who actually like died in my arms of a heart attack getting ready to go on a trip to the Grand Canyon. And uh, Mark had a DR650 and let me ride it a few times. And very, very neutral steering. Uh, his seat he had on his was stock, so that had to, was terrible. But a very friendly motor, let's say. And um, so I started searching for a used DR650, and I found one very cheap with 6,000 miles on it. And it needed a lot of work. So I bought it, and I started buying parts for it. Now, some of what I'm going to tell you next is just coming from what other, other people have told me because uh, I took a big box full of parts and two tires and I strapped them to the back of the DR. And I rode to a friend's house uh, about three hours away in southern Ohio. And he has a tire changer and he was going to put tires on the bike and new chain and sprocket, uh, valve adjustment, you know, a little, bunch of little things. I kind of remember strapping the stuff onto the bike, but uh, the next thing I remember, I woke up in the emergency room with my father, my 80-year-old father, staring staring at me. And apparently, uh, I got T-boned by a car, and I went through the windshield of the front windshield of the car head first, and my with my feet hanging out onto the, the hood of the car. Uh, I have no memory of the whole weekend, honestly, Jim. Uh, the the DR650 was totaled; it was almost bent in half from the from the impact. Somehow, miraculously, I had no broken bones. Uh, 
I had a lot of tissue damage. So uh, when I recovered from that, it took about a month before I could walk normally again. Uh, my my father, my friends, you know, they, they took that as a bad omen. You know, like it's probably not a good idea for you to continue on with this this thing. And on the other hand, I looked at it like you know it was a blessing because I, I somehow escaped from this horrible accident with no broken bones. Mm. So I found another DR650 at a uh, Suzuki dealer in Pennsylvania that had only 62 miles on it. And I negotiated it for $4,000 out the door. Wow. And it was a 2011 white. And I, a friend of mine uh, drove me there with his trailer, drove it back home. And he let me, I had no garage. I had no home. Uh, he let me use his garage to start modifying the DR. So I, I basically stripped it down to a bare frame and, uh, Let's just say on my DR, the only stock thing on the bike is the motor and carburetor. Uh, well, what do you mean you had no home? I have no house. I, 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 the only place I have left to live now is with my father, which is fine. But So what you're saying is you, you quit your job. Did you sell a house or did you just move out of your house you're renting or leasing or something? Yes. Yeah. So you you were done with that, and you were getting you were, so you were, you were really close to leaving on this trip. That's what you're saying because I don't think we quite got that. Oh, what yeah. you were saying, you were very yeah, close yeah, yeah. to doing it. So now you you take this bike and strip it down. You you picked the DR650 because it's such a reliable bike. So right. why do you want to strip it all down and, and change everything with it? What, what did you have in mind there, and what made you do it? <laughs> well, the nine thousand dollar budget. <laughs> And the fact that I only paid four grand for the bike. <laughs> See, it's uh, money to burn. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the DR's stock suspension is not, uh, let's just say, beefy enough to handle. I'm 200-pound person, and I'm carrying about 100 pounds of gear. Uh, so the suspension needed to be redone. Uh, I added a 30-liter uh, Safari gas tank. And uh, I also added a uh, Yankro rally fairing. So I have this really beautiful aluminum and Kevlar, really tall fairing that fits on top of the Safari tank. Mm. So I have a beautiful carbon fiber dashboard and an adjustable windscreen. It's uh, not like most DR650s. Um, everything else on the DR, there's so many companies making aftermarket parts for it. So, you know, like... Uh, I've also got some help from some companies that have uh, given me some sponsorship help on this trip too. I should so Woody's Wheelworks in Denver. Uh, I'm a friend of Woody's. Woody built me a pair of custom wheels for the bike. Uh, JNS Engineering who makes some aftermarket aluminum parts for the DR650. He gave me some help. Uh, Google Tech uh, fuel filters gave me some help. Rocks risers uh, gave me a little bit of uh, help. So these companies didn't give me full sponsorship because I didn't ask for that. I just asked for an exchange. Of, you you give me this particular item I'm looking for, and I'll mention you in my blog often. Mm. And uh, it's worked out really nicely because the other agreement I made with them is if their product fails, that I won't mention it on the blog until I talk to them first. 
which you know is, is from a buyer's perspective from my my perspective it, it's a fair deal because then i can't have people reading my blog claiming that i'm biased because it's a sponsored item because these are items i would have paid for anyways when you're modifying the bike and you're getting ready to go on the trip, was there any concern with the doing such heavy modifications that you're going to create more problems down the road? And the, and the one of the reasons I ask is because I know that from other people that um, a lot of times the problems that people find on their motorcycles are created from something they've modified before they've left. That's a, that's a good question, Jim. Uh, part of the modification of my bike, I followed a uh, a blog of Paul Stewart around the world, Paul, um, he did a nice blog on adventure rider where he had modified a couple DR six fifties for around the world trip. And, um, mo- most of the changes I'm doing are not exactly what you would call functional changes, lowering and moving the foot pegs back, going to larger foot pegs. Um, the only true my manufacturer's modification I made was I reinforced the subframe in two areas that uh, there had been a few instances of DR650 subframes cracking in a couple places because of carrying a load. So I did that before I even left uh, rather than trying to get it welded in the middle of Mexico somewhere. Um, no, I again, I left the motor and the carburetor stock. Uh, I didn't even modify my air, my air box to bring more power. Uh my exhaust system is mainly stock. I wasn't out to capture another 10 horsepower that's easily available on the DR. I wanted reliability. I wanted uh, efficiency, you know, like miles per gallon. Yeah, because, I mean, that's what you're after as a, as a traveler. Is you want something reliable. You, the last thing you want to be doing. I mean, for most people, anyway, maybe if you're really into working on your bike, you don't care. And, and you'll go ahead and do that. But most people want reliability. <laughs> you know, and also... After riding that 250 around down in, through the Smoky Mountains, loaded down, uh, even a stock the R650 felt like a tractor compared to that thing. So <laughs> you've got tons of power, <laughs> tons of power, and I'm running a slightly lower gearing than stock, uh, with the idea being to help preserve the clutch life, especially off road, getting starting on a hill, uh, slightly lower gearing, you know lets you engage a clutch a little easier. But even with the slightly lower gearing, I can cruise at 70 miles an hour all day. And the bike is smooth and happy. Mm. It lowered my top speed a little, but I, I've been on the road now five months on the second part of this trip. I can't even remember the last time I was at 70. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you now you just said second part of the trip. There, there's a reason that you're on a second part of the trip. Uh, just to, to jump back to when you quit your job, you quit your job. You took the 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 buyout for your retirement package. What do you end up with, and, and what do you have for a budget? What, what does that overall plan look like? Originally, I ended up with uh, all my debt paid, every everything, every, every single thing I owed to anyone paid. Uh, all taxes paid and everything. I, originally, I had $35,000. That's it. Um, and you're going to go for how long? What's the, what's the plan? Well, the budget on phase one of the trip was $100 a day, which is a massive amount of money. And um, I could have, at $100 a day, you know, gone for uh, quite, a, quite a while. But... Um, 
Where did you come up with $100 a day? Well, if if you read a lot of people's blogs and a lot of people's plans for trips, uh, Latin America on $50 a day is easy. And so at $100 a day, I was I was double budget thinking I could live like a king. I could stay in nice hotels if I wanted. I I wouldn't be worried or stressed out if I needed a pair of tires in the middle of nowhere, you know. I'm I'm operating on a $50 a day budget right now because on part one of the trip, the uh, medical problems I had in Mexico cost me quite a bit of money. And uh, after they released me from the hospital, I ended up riding. My original plan was to ride back to Ohio, uh, save up some more money, make some more money, and then get the medical work done that they suggested. Mm. Yeah, uh, and that makes perfect sense. It's, it's almost ironic, isn't it, that you end up having a problem that it, that ends up costing <laughs> money uh, for you. And, it sucks. And, yeah, <laughs> and, then, sucks. and then send you back on, on a different budget. So uh, I want to ask you about that that, that Latin culture, sure. because I know you always had a fascination. What is your fascination with the Latin culture? What attracts you to that? You know, it's hard to it's hard to put a it's hard to put your finger on it. Um, most of from the border of Mexico south all the way to Ushuaia, most every country, their history is so rich and deep that there's like two stages of their of all the Latin countries' history, pre-Spanish and and post-Spanish, and. Everywhere from Mexico to Argentina, they all they all codify and and, and embrace their their pre-Spanish roots. You know, so there's a lot of archaeological sites for Incan and Mayan ruins and, and other indigenous cultures. There's museums everywhere in every country I've been in, filled with artifacts from pre-Spanish. You, you you get a strange feeling of some resentment for the Spanish rule. But at the same time, most of these countries have extremely high percentage of Catholicism and Christianity, which they owe directly to the Spanish. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not a religious person. I'm not an atheist, but I don't belong to any particular religion. But I really love old structures. And I don't mean like Aztec pyramids, which I love, but anything, you know, churches, little shops and my personal gauge on how I rate these cities that I've been going through is like, not just how well kept it is or how clean it is, but how, how well preserved the colonial sections are. And that's one of the reasons why I've been in Cuenca here a week is it's just a gorgeous city that, that has uh, successfully blended the new and the old to the point where you don't feel like you're in this big, filthy modern city, you know, um, Latino people seem to, and, and there are some differences in attitudes in a few of the Central American countries I've been in, but for the most part, Latino people seem to let things roll right off the, off the back, you know, uh, not much bothers them. They've seen a lot. They've been through a lot historically. And, um, their attitudes about politicians and and world governance and stuff is is very uh, refreshing. You know they don't let it get them down. Um, you'll you'll see 
the poorest people in the smallest little village that have literally next to nothing. You'll see the biggest smiles from those people and the warmest greetings from them that you'll, you'll see from anywhere in the world. And, uh, the deeper I get into this, the, the more I'm enjoying that and the slower I'm going too. I, I've, I can't remember the last time I did more than, you know, 250 miles in a day. You mentioned it a little, little while ago, you mentioned about one of the things you were doing was sort of looking for a place that maybe you want to live after you're retired. Was that in the States? Or are you, are you thinking of living in Latin America? Latin America. Mm. So this, this has been something that's been ongoing for a long time. I, I'm curious what your, so when you arrive in a city, for instance, a city that you're in right now, what's your sort of, your sort of modem operandi? Are you looking for historical things? Are, are you looking for culture? Well, most, most of the places I stay, I either have booked through Airbnb or hostels that I've read about on uh, iOverlander. And so I usually, like today, since I'm leaving here tomorrow morning, I'm leaving Cuenca, I don't really plan too far ahead, Jim. So I know what direction I'm heading now, and I have an idea what I'll be doing the next couple of days. But part of my uh, work I'll do later this afternoon was try to determine within a four to five hour ride where I'll end up. I'm going to head south and east tomorrow into back into some more mountainous areas. I've already kind of looked and seen that there's not too many hotels and hostels there, but there is some camping opportunities. So uh, part of what I'll need to do tomorrow morning is is uh, pick up a little bit of food for camping. Um, most of the time, Airbnb and iOverlander, you're able to by reading the people's reviews of the places, you're able to uh, get an idea where it's located. Is it close to El Centro? And El Centro is typically like the main square in the town or the village. And the main square is where the oldest churches are usually. It's usually somewhat of the touristy area, but I'm okay with that. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to the markets that are a bunch of uh, people selling tourist, you know, tchotchke kind of stuff. Um, but I like to get near the old center of town or the old part of town where I'm staying. And then once I get to a spot like Cuenca here, I haven't ridden my bike in a week. I, I usually don't ride the bike. I leave the bike sword safely. Like right now it's in the hallway outside my room here and I walk. And if it's a large city like Quito, I stayed a week in Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador. I, I took Uber, used Uber once in a while to get around. You know, you go across town in an Uber uh, ride for less than $2. So, you know, history is what I'm looking for. And if you were look at the pictures on my blog, you'd see a lot of pictures of old churches and old buildings. I don't know why. That's what I like. <laughs> we we talked about the fact this is your, your second sort of go at it. What happened on the first go? Well... Uh, I was being Mr. Um, hardcore miles. Like I used to be on this, on the sport bikes, you know, like a 10 hour day, wasn't that big of a deal. But when what, I left, what do you mean? Is that like sort of like a macho thing? You mean like you'd sort of push yourself to do it? Well, 
depending on you know the timetable for when you're going to get down to Ushuaia because of the weather. Um, I had originally when I left in June of 2018, I had a November 3rd passage booked for the stall rot to take me from Panama to Colombia. Now, if you were to research what's the ideal time to hit Ushuaia, you'd find out that most people say starting around Christmas right through February. That's their summer. Mm -hmm. Anything before Christmas and you could hit bad weather. Like right now, it's cold down there. Um, so my original plan was to cross November 3rd and that would give me two months to get all the way down there, which is not that much time. So I had planned big days, and I was doing 10-hour days. And when the trip began, I first went to, to Baltimore from Ohio to visit my son. And then I went down to uh, the Deals Gap area in the Smoky Mountains. And then I rode cross country to Denver, Colorado, to Woody's Wheel Works to have my new wheels installed and get some new tires and chain and sprocket installed. And then I hustled into Mexico and it, it, it didn't really occur to me until later when the doctor was asking me questions about what had happened. I, I June of 2018, riding into Denver, Colorado, I arrived at Denver in their all-time record heat wave. And I had already ridden like a number of days going towards Colorado in 100, 108, 110 degree temperatures. So I rode across the western U.S. during a record heat wave. When I left Denver and I headed south, it was very hot. All, all the way through central Mexico was 100 degrees plus. And uh, looking back at it now, I really did not hydrate very well. I was not drinking that much water. Mm. I was doing long days, and I was arriving at my destination completely whipped, you know, not able to look around, explore the city, see the culture. Uh, I was, you know, happy just to have a bed. And um, I had joined a rider from Texas who rides Mexico quite often. And we, he rode with me all the way to southern Mexico, to Oaxaca. And when he split, about two weeks later is when I just wasn't feeling well for a few days. I, I had a low fever, and I checked into this Airbnb apartment in Selena Cruz. And the next day, the woman sent her son up and asked if I was okay because they hadn't seen me leave the apartment. And I told him I wasn't feeling well, that I had a fever. So they went and got some antibiotics for me. And the very next morning, I took the first round of antibiotics. And I don't really remember anything after that. It's kind of a common theme with me. Uh, the next night, like 24 hours later, her son found me unconscious in the bathroom. And I don't even remember going to the bathroom there and her son carried me down the steps. They put me in their car and drove me to the hospital. I woke up, I think, 18 hours later with, you know, IVs everywhere. So what had happened was I had a colon infection that ruptured mm. and went, sep went sepsis, it's called, I guess. And uh, 
the doctor said I was like eight to 12 hours from death when they found me. And so they wanted me to have surgery. They, they kept, uh, they kept telling me that I needed surgery and it was a really terrifying period of my time, uh, of my life because my Spanish is fairly poor. It's improving though. And at the time I was in the hospital, I didn't have my cell phone cause it was back at the apartment. I didn't have my wallet because it was back at the apartment and they were yabbering at me in, in Spanish about surgery and they needed money. And I didn't know, I, I knew what hospital I was in, but I, I assumed that Teresa, the woman that owned the apartment I was staying at, had gotten me there. So after a couple of days, they let Teresa come in and visit, and she brought me my things. And the day after that, they found a nurse at a nearby clinic that spoke English, um, Lydia. And she would come in every day and help me communicate with them. And so after three weeks on um, two different antibiotics, uh, the infection subsided. You're three weeks uh, laying in this Mexican hospital? Uh, four weeks, actually. But it was after three weeks that they decided that they would release me. Well, and you had insurance for this, did you? Or are you paying cash? There's another good story. I did have an insurance program with the company called uh, Worldwide Nomads. But um, I had to pay cash for everything. And when I filed the claim with Worldwide Nomads, including all the receipts for everything, I had doctor signs, everything. Uh, just this past week, I finally got a check from Worldwide Nomad. And the check was for a fraction of what the costs were. So, mm. um, how, lo how long did it take to get your money? Um, a year. Wow. And do they say this is normal or is there some sort of problem with the claim? The problem was that I wasn't in the U.S. that I had left again. Oh. And so uh, it was difficult for me to get them all the forms that they needed signed from the doctors in Oaxaca when I was already, you know, on the trip again. It, it's when, when you're on the road constantly, Jim, it's hard to maintain a semblance of normalcy as far as like, uh, documentation transfers and stuff like that. You can do a lot of it with pictures and emails, but it's, it's not as easy as having a, a home address, let's say. Mm -hmm. Same with, you know, spare parts. If I need, if I need parts shipped, I have to figure out somewhere ahead of me to have the parts shipped. We're going to take just a short break to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. And I've got some good stuff that I want to share with you here um, that I, I'm sure you're going to be interested in. Anyway, when we come back, we've got a lot more to this story. So stay with us. Well, drag your map out and plot a route or route, depending on how you want to say it. For Overland Expo East, it's your last chance to get to the biggest overlanding show in the East, Overland Expo, running October 11 to 13, 2019 at Infinity Downs in Arrington, Virginia. Now remember, you got to buy your tickets online. There's no tickets at the gates. That's just the way they do it. And there's only a few tickets left because when I look today, there's only 36 Overland Experience Moto tickets left. 36, that's it. So really, you got to hustle. 
grab your ticket now. Um, there's so much going on there. They've also expanded their website. You can see their schedule of programs online right now if you go to their website. There's so much going on. I can only touch on a few things. 150 plus vendors to check out. Motorcycle expedition skills area. Hands-on training pavilions. Classrooms. Roundtables. Movies. Map room. Demo areas. Even they have a kids adventure area. They're going to have riders and travelers like Sam Manicom. Ted Simon, Simon and Lisa Thomas, they're going to be there talking, doing several presentations, and you, you can even have a chance to meet them. Overlandexpo.com is the website. Oh, and by the way, they just they just announced next year's dates for Overland Expo West just came out. Um, for 2020 Overland Expo West, they do, they do two uh, shows, one in the West, one in the East, May 15 to 17 in Flagstaff. So please, anytime you're dealing with them, take the time to mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Overlandexpo.com. I can tell you from experience, the difference that a IMS foot peg will make over your stock peg will be so profound, you'll probably be talking about it as much as I do on this show. IMS makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs for us riders. These pegs are warranted for life. They're made in the USA. They're made of the highest quality parts. And IMS has a reputation, has a pedigree that goes back to 1976. That's how long they've been in business, doing what they're doing still today. Always run by racers and enthusiasts. IMSproducts.com is the website. Drop by, have a look at what they've got. And when you do, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with our rider skills programs, that we, uh, episodes that we do here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, Moto Discovery uh, Tours and Training offers what they call immersion training. Now, I'm going to tell you what that is and how it works in, in just a minute. But I, I want to mention to you that this is the first time we've had Moto Discovery on the show. And I thought I'd mention they've been around for quite a while. As a matter of fact, our, our own coach, Ramey Stroud, did work for them when he was alive. And if you know Coach Ramey's work ethic, uh, it says a lot for the Moto Discovery team. They haven't always been Moto Discovery because back in, in 1981, they started this in 1981 as Pancho Villa Moto Tours um, because they were working in Mexico, doing trips in Mexico. And then they changed it in 2003 to Moto Discovery because they, they were expanding to doing trips all over the world. So in a relatively small market like our adventure motorcycling market, it really says something when a company has been operating this many years at that level. So anyway, I was, I was talking about the immersion training programs. Um, what they do with immersion training is they, they teach you some skills and then they take you out in the real world with an instructor and you learn more while you ride. Well, you learn to apply those skills while you ride. So they say, you know, a weekend of coaching will certainly be a benefit. But um, if you really want the training to become planted, then you got to apply those new skills in the real world. And that's what immersion training is for them, which I think is a great concept. You know, you, you learn those skills and then you go out and you ride and then you can make mistakes and your instructor can see it and say, hey, you've got to do this or back off on that. Um, you know, in, in the real world, I think it's just a, a great way to do it. They've got some coming up soon. They've got uh, one coming up soon in Moab, uh, but you're going to have to hustle to get in on that one because I think that one's really close. They also have dates for 2020. They only allow 10 riders on this, which is the other thing too. So small groups. And I also like what they say about they specialize in personalized, low testosterone rider training for men and women provided by professional instructors. That's a big part of training because I don't think many of us like the feeling of getting in over our heads or feeling like we're being pushed to learn a, a new skill. You know, 
And the fact that they recognize that and, and that's part of their policy, I think that's great. Anyway, the website is motodiscovery.com. Anytime you visit them, deal with them, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, and by the way, they do trips all over the world, not just training. So have a look at the whole thing. If you're interested in doing a motorcycle trip somewhere, it might be worthwhile having a look at it as well. Motodiscovery.com. So continue on. So you're, you're in the hospital. What do you end up doing? So after three weeks, they said that the infection had subsided because remember the colon had ruptured. So this infection had made it into my body cavity and, um, they were going to release me on, on, uh, one condition that I continued seeing treatment at a, uh, another doctor that was in, uh, San Miguel de Allende, which is in Guanajuato state northern Mexico. And I have uh, friends that live there and they let me uh, stay with them a week while I saw this other doctor as a follow-up. And this other doctor, uh, just like the surgeons in the hospital, warned me that I shouldn't continue the trip until I have this work done, this medical work done. And um, That's in an operation, you mean? Well, I needed to have an upper GI. I needed to have a colonoscopy and the colonoscopy was critical to see what, what kind of damage the colon wall had from the rupture. Mm, I see. So they're, they're just concerned that you may still be, you know, at, at risk and they're, they're thinking you need to get right. thoroughly checked before you get back on the bike. Right. And, right. Right. So, so I said, don't worry, doc. And I really love this doctor too, uh, in San Miguel. In fact, I consider him my doctor now, uh, I said, don't worry, Doc, I'll, I'll just ride home. Well, you know, like, he said, from Mexico to Ohio? I said, yeah, yeah, it's not that far. <laughs> and uh, so what I did was kind of stupid there, too. I, uh, I, As I'm about to head north out of Mexico, I thought, you know, there's the West Coast I've never ridden. So why don't I, uh, why don't I enter uh, California through Mexico? And... Uh, right up the West coast. I have some family that was from San Francisco area. I'd like to see that again. And I visited them when I was younger and I had fond memories of San Francisco. So then uh, as I'm coming up the, the West coast in California, I got this crazy idea in my head that, uh, I would continue up the coast to Oregon and pick up the trans America trail. And I did that. And I rode the trans America trail all the way east back to the Smoky Mountains. Hey, Dan, uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but that obviously that's not a direct route. <laughs> but but not like I that. Know. The, the doctors told you that you need this stuff. You're I going know. home to get it done. Why not, just, why not just do it down there and then just continue on? I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, Jim, I think I was trying to prove to myself that I was some hardcore adventure off-road rider guy. But the reality of it is, is that the load I was carrying and the kind of load I'm carrying for the type of overlanding I'm doing is not the kind of load you should be carrying on the Trans America Trail. And um, I had some really scary, sketchy times in Colorado and Utah carrying 100 pounds of gear, hard panniers through some of those through some of those passes. Riding by yourself. By myself. Mm -hmm. I had one time in Colorado, and I put pictures on my blog of this, but uh, I, I, I made a wrong turn and I was on a red section and I didn't know it. 
And it was these extremely crazy switchback descent with baby heads and screed. It was so deep that I just couldn't even slow down. It was really hard just going downhill. And about halfway down this descent, I passed a guy on a mountain bike that's carrying his bicycle up the other way. And I stopped him and said, you know, how far down does this go? And he says, well, you've got a map. You can look at it. And I said, no, is it getting any worse? He goes, no, nah. he goes, uh, the water crossing's kind of deep, but going up the other side, you might have trouble. So I decided at that point that I would turn around. And uh, I had a hard time even turning the bike around on the steepness of this this descent. I could smell clutch. I could smell clutch. But I had a hard time even getting the bike moving because the, the scree and the broken rock was so deep. And on this one trying to ascent, trying to get back up out of this ravine, I crashed like three times. Mm. And I had a hard time lifting the bike up with all the gear on it. So I'm now I'm exhausted. And I make uh, I took about a half hour with my boot clearing a, a little narrow groove in the broken rock to try to get traction to get going and it kind of worked i got a good head of steam going and then i hit a couple baby heads really bad and, and it threw the bike off the side of the road onto my ankle and so now i'm about six feet down in a ravine the bike laying on my leg and and i, I somehow got the bike off of my leg and i thought i had broken my ankle i couldn't put weight on it the bike was wheels up in the air, no one around. I couldn't get the bike upright. The gas is pouring out of the tank because the top of the safari tank, I just have a vent tube, nothing, you know, no catch or anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually set up camp and slept on the tra on the middle of the trail that night. And I didn't even sleep that well, obviously. And in the morning, uh, most of the gas had, leaked out of my bike. I struggled down the ravine. I got all the luggage off the bike. And then I basically dragged the bike on its side to get the wheels downhill. And in this time, nobody, nobody's come by. Nobody's come by. And you camp in the middle of the trail. Why? To make sure that somebody sees you when they come by? Because off the sides of the trail were just deep drop-offs. It was, this trail was the only semi-flat area oh, around. I see. Only place you got. Hmm. Yeah, and I was paranoid the whole night. Every time I heard any noise, I'd like wake up thinking it was some Yahoo on a side by side going to be coming running into me. <laughs> and so I, I get the bike uh, upright. I get it out of the ravine using rope. And uh, I had uh, the stove I'm using uses regular unlighted gasoline. I have a one liter bottle of fuel. That saved me because the gas tank was already below the reserve level because everything had leaked out. Did you didn't you think of pinching the line off or anything? Your your vent tube? I was I, I was not in the right frame of mind, Jim. Yeah, I was lit, I was seriously almost in tears. At one point, I almost flipped up that little rubber flap on my on my spot device for the SOS button. I a, a couple times sitting there, I lifted the flap up and. I know what happens when you hit that SOS button. I know people come and help you, but I also know that the dollars start flying out the window. I mean, 
those type of rescues cost a lot of money. Well, and it's a responsibility, isn't it? You put it, you instantly put people at risk when you when you press it. And you know, if, right. if, if you're if someone was listening to this and has never been in that situation, you have to be in that to really understand just how dire it is. Because there, there's the remoteness, there's the the situation of your bike, and then you've got your ankle. Um, right, that can be extremely stressful. It, it it's it's like I said, I was almost in tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I somehow made it out of that ravine when I, when I made it to the, to the top and I saw where it intersected a, the regular trail, I was like, Oh, damn it. I know what I did now. You know, I, I, I see that I wasn't paying attention and I went off the, the, the blue trail onto the red trail. And so now I'm able to actually stand on the pegs a little and I'm thinking, okay, the, the ankles just bruised bad. There's no way it's broken if I can stand on it like that. So I'm riding along and I only had a liter of fuel. So I'm trying to make it to the nearest exit to find gas. And uh, I see a motorcycle coming the other way. There was some older guy on a KLR 650 and he waves as, as he's coming up and I wave and he motions to stop. And he, he first thing he says is, what the hell are you doing down there? You could see the trail I came up out of. And I said, uh, oh, man, it's a long story. And my bike was all beat up, too. And it's just, you know, that's an expert section. And even the experts don't do that section. Certainly not with a loaded bike with hard panniers. Right, right. And um, so I said, oh, I, I need to eat. You, you've had lunch. You want? You know, I got plenty of food. I need to cook it now. Like, let's have lunch. Sure, let's have lunch. So, like, right there on the trail and these beautiful birch trees, we got off the bikes, and I look over, and a damn lid to one of my panniers was gone. And that was with my tent and everything in it. Uh, and so, so I, like, told the guy, I'm sorry, I got to go. And he's like, what? I have to put my helmet back on. I says, I got to go. I lost the top of my pannier. And uh, luckily, I found it. But that was that was one of the roughest days on the trip. For the rest of the tap ride, all the way to the Smoky Mountains, every time I came, when I was on a section that had a red section, I was I, I was much more acutely aware of what was coming up every day. And before that, I was just like, I'm in section ten, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know, I didn't, it didn't matter to me. Yeah, and it's funny with that sort of thing is you can often you get into a situation. I find this where I'm going down trails that I don't know where they go. And they get worse and you go through something, get a little worse and you go through that. And then pretty soon you've got a whole pile of stuff that you've gone through that's been pretty darn bad. And you're thinking, if I have to turn around now, this is going to be really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) So it tends to push you on. You don't know what to do. I have a new rule of thumb. It's funny. It's an off-road rule of thumb. And and I've used it on this trip a couple times in Mexico and once in Guatemala. And it it only works on descents so far. If, If... if I'm on off-road and I'm going downhill, as soon as anything I'm on, I, I think I would have trouble going back up. I stop and turn around. Mm. So in other words, if, if if I'm rolling downhill over crazy stuff and I stop for a moment, I look back up and I'm thinking that would be hard to go up. I stop. Because no matter what descent you're on, to what ravine or wherever you're at, you have to come back up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, unless so, you know that it goes through to, and you know, an easy out, 
Yeah, and particularly right. when you're in another country, are you riding rough stuff like that when you're when you're traveling by yourself in another uh, country? I'd love to to make everyone listening, like my family and friends, think that everything's hunky dory. Uh, yes, and no, Jim. Uh, I, I I'd like to say that I got that extreme off road bug out of my system, or learned your lesson. Or a combination thereof, <laughs> you know. Uh, 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 my goal is to make it to Ushuaia alive, to say I did it, you know, to I rode to the southernmost city on the planet uh, on my motorcycle from Ohio. You know, that's my goal is to be able to say I did this uh, before I die, that I did something I've dreamed about doing. You, you can make it down there on almost all pavement. Mm-hmm. So technically, you could do this trip on a Harley Sportster or whatever, if you were careful. The problem is, is that there are some awesome off-road opportunities in every one of these countries. And uh, some of the dirt roads I've ridden in Ecuador have been kind of rough as far as like, you know, on your suspension, but they weren't that difficult. Um I stayed for a week in Quito, Ecuador, and I was the ho- uh, I was being hosted by Sata, who is the owner of a, a very popular motorcycle shop in Quito called Moto Hell, and uh, Moto Hell is an awesome shop, and he specializes in VR six fifties, but he it's a really well known shop for being like the place where you can get tires, where you can get new piston put in whatever you, he's done final drives on multiple people's BMW GSs, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Sata and his wife, Michelle took me, uh, and a French writer, uh, Caro, uh, for a day trip around, uh, the volcano Cotopaxi. And that was just, you know, I, I I know some of my hardcore off-road friends would like have ridden that and said it was a piece of cake, you know. But you know, some of the roads were pretty rough, but they weren't like difficult. It just you got to put up with not being comfortable for a little while, you know. And uh, what do you mean, bouncing around, scenery, or just the sort of yeah, unsafe feeling yeah, of a road yeah. that's well, well, you know, I don't know. On a trip like this, you know, when I'm riding down the streets of Antigua, Guatemala which is like the roughest cobblestone I've ever seen in my life. I'm riding down that road on my, on my DR thinking, Oh, my poor fork seals. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like one day in, in, in Antigua probably does as much wear and tear on the bushings and seals of my fork as two weeks of riding paved road. Mm. But you're, Dan, you're, you're saying your, your, your goal is to get to Ushuaia, right? That that's the mm-hmm. goal of this trip, alive, is what you said. I think I don't think there's right. any other way you're going to get there. But is that really your goal? Like, because it seems to me that you, when you're talking about the culture that you're experiencing when you're going to place, you seem really passionate about that. It seems like to me it's more of like a an exploration for you rather than just a means to an end. Well, most most trips like this have a destination. So, I mean. Uh, it's just a matter of semantics, Jim. I, I, I was just, that is my goal is to, uh, Ohio to Ushuaia. Uh, well, what if you didn't make it? I mean, what, what if you get most of the way down there and you have to go back? Uh, then I didn't make it and I, uh, go back home and save up and do it and try again. 
this is my part two of the trip. You know, uh, I was back home in Ohio uh, after getting through the tap for a few months. And I stayed with my father back in the bedroom I grew up in. And um, I sold off every last little bit of stuff I had, all my toys, all my, I, I fly radio controlled planes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, saved up enough money. And then in April of this past April, I flew down to Mexico and had the uh, medical work done by that doctor. And uh, he gave me a thumbs up and said I was ready to go. Literally, that was my memory of waking up from the, from the anesthesia was with Dr. Morath in my face going, Danielle, you're good to go on your trip. <laughs> so hang on. you, you, you rode home, you rode the tat to get home to get the medical yeah. stuff that you needed to get done. You sell off your toys and then you go back yeah. to Mexico to get the work done. The place that you left to get the work done. Yeah. Yes. That's how much cheaper uh, medical work is in Mexico. The procedure I had done and the round trip airfare and my food and everything cost me uh, about twelve hundred dollars. Just the surgeries I had done in the United States can cost up close to twelve thousand dollars. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, when you mention that, it's disgusting, is what it is. It, it is, and there's people. I mean, there's a thing called dental tourism now, where people oh, yeah. are going to other oh, countries yeah. to get dental work done because it's so much cheaper. And uh, right. from what I'm hearing, a lot of it is just as high quality. Look, before they put me under for the surgery, I I'm laying back and I'm thinking to myself. I really want to feel this. I want to feel the buzz come on. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay really a close attention to the clock. So I'm looking at this clock on the wall and I'm waiting for the guy to, to put the hypodermic into the IV line. And, um, all I can think of, I don't remember, uh, going under. I remember Dr. Morath telling me I'm good to go on my trip, but the only memory I have is the, the walls of the room where the surgery was done, were the most beautiful hand-painted tiles hmm. of flower, a flower pattern, like a four-by-four-inch tile with a flower pattern. And as I, probably as I was going under the drug, I was looking at this pattern. And and all I can think of is like, where else but Mexico or Latin America is the, surger, the surgical room have colorful flower tiles? Yeah. You know what I mean by yeah, that? Yeah. It's like the United States, the room you're having surgery in is antiseptic, perfectly clean, white. But the equipment they had in the surgery center was modern. Uh, the CT scan machine they had was a Samsung CT machine. I mean, everything was modern. Mm-hmm. If, if, if I would have felt like my health was at risk from having the work done there, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. You went from there after you wake up, you go back to the States, you grab your bike yeah. and you're off again. Um, I went back to the States and I did about another uh, two and a half weeks of uh, prep work on the bike because it had some problems. It had a uh, pretty bad oil leak on the rocker cover. Um, so I had to take the you know cam cover and all that off and reseal the top end of my bike. I needed some tires, minor stuff like that. But yeah, I spent a couple of weeks getting the bike ready and then I left. 
this being your sort of second go at heading down to Ushuaia, what have you learned from the first trip? Were there things that you changed? Definitely. Like you mentioned oh, yeah. doing some work. Oh, yeah. What were they? Slow down. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about equipment on your bike. That's, that's probably the oh, best one, too. isn't it? No, that, but no, but that no, is that, the best one right there. Slow down for sure. Slow down. Enjoy, enjoy the scenery. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you're on a, a trip that's going to take a year or more and you you're making plans that you have to be this far today, you have to be that far tomorrow. Uh, that's a recipe for, for problems. Um, I almost, I almost took it to heart too much this trip because when I made it into Mexico the second time, I visited my friends in San Miguel for a week, stayed at their house, and I really was going slow, and I was really enjoying Airbnb. I love Airbnb. I love meeting people. I like staying in someone's home. I like having the homeowner's opinion about what's the best restaurant in town, that kind of thing. But um, I was dilly-dallying and going so slow in Mexico. And then I thought, well, Jesus, it's, it's June 23rd now. And I looked at the calendar, and I had a July 20th boarding of the Stallrot in Carti, Panama. So I thought to myself, wait a minute. I've got like four weeks to get to Panama. And uh, it's not enough time. Um, and the first rule all of a sudden goes out the window then, the slow down. Exactly. So Central America was the most – even in part one of the trip, if you were to ask me before the trip, like, what are you most stressed out about? It was all the border crossings in Central America. Mm. Um, I've got all my documentation. I've got all my copies. I know what to do. I just wasn't looking forward to it, probably because my Spanish is, is pobre. <laughs> and uh, so I, I had this great apprehension about all these border crossings. But the, the reality of it was they weren't that difficult. Um they just take time. You plan for three hours on every one and you'll be fine. So you made your date. I did. I made it uh, two days early. So you you had no problems at borders? It's just been a straight through thing for you? Uh, in Nicaragua and Honduras, um, I got questioned a lot about why I was doing the trip. And uh, unreasonably so. They didn't understand why a middle-class white guy from the United States wanted to be in their country. But they must see and other bikes to, come through with the same sort of story. They, they, and I I think they're asking them the same questions. Mm. Um, you know, they were confused as to my answers. Was I retired? And I said, no. You know, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a professional tourista. <laughs> you know, I mean. Uh, but answers uh, like that, though, isn't aren't you really setting yourself up for? I mean, wouldn't you be better off to go in with a very simple story? You know, yeah, are you retired? Yes, I'm retired. You know, just leave it at that sort of thing. Right. Well, it ended up becoming that. Yeah. Um, I was new to the whole. <laughs> I was new to the whole uh, rigmarole of all these border crossings, and I kind of at first found it amusing why they wouldn't just accept my answer. You know. Um. But it did seem like in Nicaragua and Honduras, especially, they were extremely, uh, especially Nicaragua. I crossed over right after the border was reopened because it was closed for a while because of political unrest. 
But so they're suspicious of you. Do they search your gear or are they just really peppering you with in, questions? In Nicaragua, they did. Yeah. Thoroughly? They asked me to open. Yeah, they asked me to open up all my luggage and uh, they even uh, threatened to, I forget what, what they called it, but my one pannier, I have a nice system, but I'm a, the bottom of my left pannier is, is all spare parts. The bottom of my right pannier is all tools. So on top of that, on one side is a uh, backpack that carries my laptop and my charging equipment on my toiletries. And on top of the other pannier is a backpack that contains all my clothing. So that way, if I in a hostel, I can just take into two backpacks and leave everything else locked up in the panniers. Um, so when I took out the clothing, they asked me what it was. It says, es ropa, es ropa, es clothes. And no, they were saying, no, no. And they're pointing down. And I said, the, the parte, you know, spare parts. And they took every spare part out. And they are all these really heavy duty Ziploc bags and they laid them out on the ground and they were writing down and asking me what the parts were. And, you know, and again, I don't know what the Spanish word for coil is, or, you know, I don't know what the Spanish word for clutch cable is, uh, and so when I kept asking, why are they doing this? Because they were trying to tell me it's illegal to bring motorcycle parts through their country without declaring them. And and they charge you for that? Like they, they have some sort of fee? They, they came, they, they, yeah, they came up with some fee at the end. It was $113 US for, for what I owed plus a penalty for not declaring it. And uh, I, 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 I pulled a ploy that somebody... Uh, it showed me before I told them I was going to call my lawyer and to give me a few minutes alone. And, uh, the one guy with the machine gun stayed in the room with me, but the boss guy left and I acted for a few minutes. Like I was talking to a lawyer on the phone and they came back and they said, it's okay. You can go. Yeah. So, so I think they, the, you know, the threat that uh, that somehow they'd be involved in a legal suit or something. I don't know, but it worked. The same person, Paul Stewart, told me to, uh, you know, anytime you're pulled over for, by the police for a bribe or anything, you just, just to keep repeating, uh, no fumar espanol, no fumar espanol. Which I, haven't, means? I haven't done no smoking Spanish. <laughs> like all over Mexico and Latin America, there's signs and restaurants that say no fumar. No smoking. Mm. So if you repeat to them, no fumar espanol, it it tells them two things. One, you don't know Spanish. And two, you're stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say too. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're a waste of their time because it, the police that pull you over to bribe you, they're doing it. You know, in the 10 minutes it's taken them to try to get an answer out of you. They could have bribed somebody else. I've been pulled over twice by Mexican police for bribes. Shook down twice. And did you pay? Um, both times I had to pay something, but I, uh, I think each time I paid, uh, 500 pesos, which is, uh, $25. But both times they started out at 8,000 and 10,000 pesos. Telling you you've done something wrong. They had some reason. Uh, the first one said I was speeding and I wasn't, I was going slow in traffic. They just saw a loaded down gringo. And the second time was, uh, 
in heavy traffic on the highway going through Mexico City. Uh, they said we were, we were splitting lanes, and we were, but we were in a line of like 200 motorcycles that were splitting lanes. Hmm. But you're the foreigner, so they pick you out. Oh, uh, yeah. You, you kind of stand out. Yeah. Yeah. So on a bike loaded down. Did you attempt to to say, you know, take me to your to your superior, I want to talk to your your boss, anything like that when they're trying to bribe the, the, the one in uh Mexico City, I was with this other rider from Texas and um they wanted to see how much money I had. And I screwed up and I pulled out my drop wallet. I have a drop wallet, you know what that is? Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, that's your throwaway wallet. Oh, right. So, so somebody I pulled tries. out my drop wallet because my drop wallet didn't have very much money in it. And I pulled it out of my tank bag. And when I opened it up, the the head guy that was running the scam grabbed the wallet out of my hands and pulled the fake driver's license out of the wallet. And then it was obviously a fake once it's pulled out of the wallet. It was a laminated fake. And uh, then he goes off on this terror that now they've got this because now I'm got, – carrying a fake driver's license. And I, and I says, S copy, S copy. And he says, what? And I grabbed the license and I turned it over and I had written on the back of it with Sharpie copy, you know, so I couldn't be accused of saying it was real. Right. So then the one guy spoke some English and I tried explaining that was my drop wallet. I was just trying to show you the money I had. And, um, the guy I was with did have a lawyer and tried calling his lawyer, but I don't think he could get in touch with him. And so he did try that ploy of saying, of take us to the police station. And um, then suddenly the fine became 500 pesos. Drop down. Yeah, 500 pesos, $25. And we had already been sitting on the side of the highway for 40 minutes or more in the heat. Dan, do you think you're going to make us while? I do. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck. It sounds like you're uh, you're into a, a good start this time anyway. Daniel, thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate you having me on. That was Dan Byers riding his loaded DR650 in Ecuador, headed for Ushuaia. And we've got some photos and links for you in the show notes for this episode on our website. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And hey, you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. What about 
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, remember on our website, our show notes for every single episode we've done. We've got photographs in there and links and different information. Drop by, have a look. There's also a spot for you to put in your comments. We have our other show, Raw. Um, You can subscribe to that separately. As a matter of fact, you have to subscribe to that separately. It's put out in a different feed. It's a roundtable talks about motorcycle travel. A different format than Adventure Rider Radio, but I think you'll like it if you haven't heard it already. Uh, Drop by the website. You can find all that information there. And we would love to get your support for the show. It's built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And don't sit back and think everybody else is going to do it because that doesn't happen. We only get a small fraction of listeners who actually support the show. AdventureRiderRadio.com forward slash support. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Well, I'm Ted Simon, and here I am on Adventure Rider Radio again, uh, and extremely happy to be here with Jim Martin. (laughs) 